Welcome to the Enviwa Podcast, a podcast produced by the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research at the University of Iowa. Each month, we discuss environmental research, news, and initiatives that matter to Iowans. I'm your host this month, Jenna Ladd, and today we're speaking with Dr. Gregory Carmichael, University of Iowa Professor of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering and co-director of our very own Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. Okay, so Greg, your area of research is in air quality. Can you just tell me a little bit about your work and kind of what you do here at the University of Iowa? Yes, um, I do work in in air quality. My interest is, what I do is I develop computer models that that describe how the emissions that arise from the way uh, our activities, our daily lives, enter the air and how they're uh, transformed and transported and and deposited and how they impact human health and, and ecosystems. My focus has been on dealing with this issue from scales from urban to global. And a lot of your work takes place in China. Um, Why did you initially decide to do your research in China? I've had a a strong focus on Asia problems for a long time. And it, like most, uh, like many scientific issues, there's it's pressing needs plus personal relationships. So I started working, I came to Iowa as a faculty member in 1978. I had a close colleague in graduate school who was Japanese, and he had a faculty position in Japan. So soon after, we started a, a research collaboration that took me to Japan in the late 70s, early 80s. I spent time uh, looking at regional air pollution problems in, in uh, focused on Japan in their leading environmental institute. And at that point in time, in the early 80s, they were beginning to have exchanges with uh, Chinese scientists. So I got to meet some of the most senior Chinese scientist, and that um, led to my first visit to, to their laboratories in the, uh, you know, 1983, and that's where we uh, just started uh, a long-term collaboration there. Can you tell me a little bit more about those partnerships? How, like, how has it been working with Chinese scientists? Oh, it's been a wonderful experience, but it's been, you know, very, very interesting. Uh, if you go back to late 70s and early 80s, in the U.S., we were, you know, we had come to grips with the fact that air pollution uh, is a regional scale problem. We had the acid rain issue uh, brought to bear the fact that not only could we influence, you know, emissions from Ohio uh, River Valley could impact the lakes in in uh, New York, but also Canada and Canadian emissions from smelters could impact our lakes, and so there was a lot of work recognizing that. So we needed to bring an international component to that. When I was working in Japan, Japan was just beginning to, to, uh, to realize that there might be more of a regional problem, and China wasn't aware of this at all. And so it was very interesting from the beginning to see uh, we began early on working on this issue of, well, can Chinese emissions impact Japan? And the Chinese scientists, as well as the government, really felt that pollution really wasn't, uh, couldn't leave the uh, national boundaries. So it was an interesting evolution of concepts and ideas, but uh, scientist to scientist level, it's always been really great. Mm-hmm. There's always been uh, uh, some, uh, uh, you know, political barriers because it's a very sensitive issue. You know. Sure. Have you noticed changes over time in kind of how the travel of pollution is conceptualized in China? Yes, I think that um, they recognize, I think everyone recognizes that uh, uh, pollutants don't obey uh, political boundaries, you know, that they, 
they behave according to the way the winds blow and uh, the rules of nature. So uh, they've come to grips with that, more so in the fact that um, they understand that within China itself, um, you know, Beijing's air quality can't be controlled solely by Beijing. It really needs a regional perspective of other surrounding prefectures. And they've entered into a long-term um, political and scientific process where Korea, Japan, and China have a forum where they discuss these issues. So there is still awareness. I, would, I mean, there, there's discussions. I say it still is a, a tough topic in East Asia because Koreans and Japan feel that they uh, get a large contribution of their pollution from China. And, and so if you recognize that, and the Chinese scientists, I think, largely agree with that, but that doesn't make there is no forum to actually discuss kind of uh, regional environmental policy. And so that, you know, that exists in Europe. Uh, that's been effective, but there isn't any such thing like that. So it, it's hard to, you know, right now China's not taking actions based on what they're doing to Korea. So why is the research that you're doing in East Asia important to Iowans? For uh, various reasons. I think that, for one, we've done a lot of work foundational work that says that there is now actually a contribution from emissions from Asia to our air quality, largely in the Western United States. I would say you know it, it has a minor influence to Iowa, but it has an influence to the um, ability of the U.S. to meet its air quality standards. And so, you know, and, but on the other hand, also the emissions from the U.S. impact Europe. And so it's this idea that you know everybody's downwind of uh, somebody else's pollution and so I think that's helped to bring to bear that it is a, a global recognition that air pollution is, is a huge deal and uh, you know globally air pollution is uh, linked to 7 million deaths per year and taken together that's indoor and outdoor air pollution so taken together it's the second highest cause of uh, of death behind high blood pressure so and yet it's not really people don't really recognize that and, and even in the US uh, and even in Iowa you can attribute excess deaths due to exposure to air pollution and so I think it's important that you know the models that we're using the research that we're doing in China or wh wherever we're doing it will help improve our capabilities to understand the links between emissions and air quality and uh, we can we can take uh, better standards and, and better protections. I think in Iowa specific, I think it comes into bear more when we think about the association of air pollution and emissions associated with trade. And so obviously we have a, a lot of a lot of our export of uh, agricultural goods. Uh, China is a great partner for that. And so there's an association there. So that's a very positive thing from a trade perspective. But, you know, that also means that the nitrogen pollution, the excess fertilizer and everything else that we're applying here to support that trade has, has an impact on the environment in Iowa. So we're, we are connected very much so, especially in the, in the, in the trade relationship. Uh, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. And, you know, that has, that in my mind is also an interesting topic again today when we think about the fact that we've done a lot of our manufacturing outside of the U.S. and that's been done for a lot of you know, reasons. The cost is one. The environmental rules typically might be lower in the place that we're manufacturing. And so the consequence of that though is that still that you know, 
the iPhone that I buy, those components that are made in China, there were emissions associated with that that were moved out of the U.S. to China, and uh, some of those, uh, it has an impact to China air quality, but also some of that pollution drifts back to the U.S. And so this, this idea of the embedded trade and the association of, of emissions, I think, is, is another example that it's really a global problem, and if you just move it geographically, you're not really solving the problem. Yeah, it seems almost impossible to like compartmentalize. Exactly. Yeah. I think we're more connected than than we realize when we and when we make these decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Certainly. You've conducted air quality forecasting field experiments in Chile, California, the Arctic, among several other locations. What are some common themes that you've observed in these different places? You know, we do field studies all over the world, and the reason we do that is that each of these regions have pressing air pollution and climate-related problems, and each time we go there, we can help get new knowledge that can help solve that problem in the region, but also uh, foundational information that can improve our modeling studies. You know, one common theme that uh, is quite prevalent in many of the studies that you mentioned is the role of fires and mm-hmm. smoke from fires. And certainly, we coming back to the connection with Iowa, you know, even last year we had very bad air quality, and, and oftentimes our air quality is associated with, with fires. In that particular case last spring, it was associated with this large fire in western Canada, and we had uh, very high and, uh, you know, for us very bad air quality associated with that smoke. And, and so Chile has uh, large amounts of smoke in certain years. The Arctic is impacted by smoke. And so smoke is interesting because it's both an air pollution problem, but it also releases, uh, it has climate implications. And, and under our changing climate, we're actually experiencing more fires than before. And so dealing with fires, how do you manage fires? How do you take fires into account when you're dealing with air quality standards and violations? Uh, these are all important issues for us to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed, too, when I was looking at some of the work you've done, some of it centers around black carbon, um, which has to do with fires. And that's just not a term that I've heard a lot. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so black carbon has become a a really uh, important air pollutant. And it's it's really a name for, we would commonly think of it as smoke or soot, but it's, you know, coming from combustion of all sorts of things. It's incomplete combustion. We're left with particles that are black in nature. What's interesting about that is that it's really moved to the forefront for a couple of reasons. One, it's been uh, connected, particles themselves have been connected with human health problems. Those deaths I mentioned uh, globally are largely due to particles. And black carbon itself has been specifically linked to negative health outcomes, uh, cancers and others. So it's been identified as one of the components. And it'll come from smoke, it'll come from diesel automobiles, it'll come from you know, incomplete combustion of all sorts of things. What we've done a lot of work in is to, that people didn't recognize, though it makes sense, the particle is black and so it actually absorbs sunlight. And when I absorb sunlight, I'm going to warm. And so it actually acts as a warming agent just like carbon dioxide does. And so here we have a black carbon, which is a health problem, but also it acts as a warming agent. And by our analysis, it could be maybe the second most important warming agent uh, after carbon dioxide. And so that opens up this really neat opportunity uh, to address black carbon if we could, 
if we could reduce black carbon, we would get an immediate health benefit, and we'd also get uh, a reduction of the warming uh, component. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's why it's interesting. And the other, from a climate perspective, the other thing that's n interesting about black carbon, you know, we just had a snow event here, and so, you know, if you want to melt your snow, I mean, you can put salt on, but also we know that if there was dark particles on top of the snow, it's going to absorb solar radiation. It's going to warm. It's going to melt the snow. Well, it's one of the reasons we went, went to the Arctic is because of both fires being transported in the Arctic and depositing black carbon on the ice and the snow, but also we have mineral extraction, other things. The Scandinavians like their uh, saunas and their fireplaces. All of that is putting smoke that's depositing into the Arctic, and that's giving us a feedback. So in addition to warming the atmosphere and the outside temperature is getting warmer, the black carbon on top of snow is accelerating the, the melting of the glaciers and, and the snowpack. So that's become really an exciting area where a policy that's actually moving forward in climate because there are ways to get this co-benefit between health and climate by focusing mm -hmm. attention on black carbon. And it's, it's easier to control that oftentimes than it is to, you know, CO2 needs to be controlled, but getting our act together to, to really modify how we're, you know, reducing our fossil fuels and other things, it's, it's not as easy as, uh, as going after air pollutants like black carbon. So sure, sure. If I could come back, um, come back to China for a second. Yeah. You know, in the, the interesting thing about, you know, we mentioned the, the evolution of working in China from 1983 to present. It's really been, you know, a very interesting transition because back in 83, it, you know, it was a very poor country. Everybody was wearing, you know, Mao jackets and uh, bicycles everywhere, no vehicles other than for private officials, you know, very low-rise buildings, and that was very different. And then the scientists were all very good, but they were, you know, I would say in terms of in the atmospheric science area, you know, their level of instrumentation and other components and their access to computers was very different than we had here. But, you know, over that time, you know, I was there, I was actually there during the Tiananmen Square period, and that was just, you know, you could just kind of see this as they were beginning to kind of look the other way on some rules, a little bit of uh, more independence. You could see it in the people, but during that week, you just saw it went from a, a, few, a few students uh, protesting on Tiananmen Square and people worried about, you know, oh, they're starving, they're doing a hunger, hunger strike, but just day by day, you, you could see the, you know, my colleagues, everybody getting involved and everybody took to the streets. It was just this, <laughs> you know, just, so you kind of just saw that. It was a, it was a, you know, a unique experience to be there. Um, and then, of course, the, the crackdown on that. And uh, uh, I had colleagues that were, you know, left the country because they were very uh, in environmental officials who were very engaged in the, mm -hmm. in the support. So a lot of disruption. But then you kind of fast forward today in the air pollution area where they have facing very, very severe air pollution problems, but they are putting huge amounts of money. Mm -hmm. And the research community now is as sophisticated and as talented as, uh, uh, as anybody. They have more resources than they know what to do with. And they're working really hard doing the science, but also they're, unlike here, the science is working extremely close to provide input 
to policymakers, and they're making policy almost in near, in real time with the science. So they're really working together. And the general people now, you know, you go back 10 years ago, the PM 2.5 is is the small particles that do the most health damage. The U.S. has had a focus on that for a long time. In China, they had no focus on that. And now everybody in the, every citizen, no, regardless of where they live, actually knows what PM 2.5 is. They know the word PM 2.5. They're taking measurements, they're taking actions. You know, they still have a long ways to go, but it's just been, you know, over these, whatever, I guess nearly four decades now, uh, mm -hmm. it's just been a, a really uh, interesting transition to see how they've you know, kind of been addressing air pollution in bigger and bigger ways. It's fascinating to learn, too, that the scientists are influencing the policymakers just because I feel like there's a common misconception that um, the policymakers there, you know, just have like a strict hold on scientists and are controlling yeah. what they're doing, et cetera, uh, which we're seeing a little bit here yeah. in the United States <laughs> yeah. now. So it's kind of flipped yeah. that on its head. Yeah, and it, and it really is because they have such a pressing problem and they understand that they need to do it, but they also need the information about, as I mentioned, let's taking Beijing again. You know, it wasn't so many years ago that they, they were feeling that they could just solve Beijing problem on its own, but it's really all the, the development around there. And, you know, a big transformation w was uh, the Beijing Olympics, and, and I worked with them on that, where, you know, they really wanted to put forward the best case they could from an environmental perspective. And so, you know, they began to put in really forward-looking environmental reduction strategies. Some of them were just very temporary, you know, banning cars, moving people, the, the migrants out of the city. And, you know, they had control that they could do over the few weeks period. But they also put into place things that were longer-lasting. And, uh, and I think that gave them some momentum to continue to address the problem. Again, these, these high-profile events are very important. I do a lot of work for the United Nations World Meteorological Organization, and, and we, have, we have done many forward-looking and, and accelerated air quality actions based on countries hosting mm. these high-profile events. And we put in, helped the Indians put in the, their first measurement and air quality forecasting program in support of the Commonwealth Games in Delhi, uh, mm -hmm. for example. But that is just repeated over and over again. So sure. one, of my, one of my advocacies is uh, we should have more high-profile events everywhere <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that they can you kind of justify making the initial investments to uh, mm -hmm. create more high-profile events. So. Yeah, that's probably not a bad idea. So uh, kind of cir circling back to China again, um, Governor Iowa Governor Terry Branstad was recently appointed ambassador to China. Um, do you think this will change the relationship between Iowa and China in any way? Well, I mean, Iowa and China has a great relationship already. Yeah. I mean, uh, largely through, you know, uh, Governor Branstad and his relationship with the current leadership. So, and the relationship of trades. I think that's a real plus for Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think he's a, a good person to have there. I'm pretty excited because I do a lot of work in, in China. Mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. Embassy has played a hugely important role in China. Going back just a few years, um, the embassy in Beijing put in a, a U.S. technology instrument for measuring PM 2.5, and it reported its observations to the public. At the same time, China was just beginning to take 
six PM two point five uh, observations, but they the values that they were reporting were often different from the uh, embassy's numbers, mm. and oftentimes lower. Mm-hmm. And so this created this really got the public thinking about what's going on here. It turns out, and it's widely recognized in China that the monitoring in China oftentimes they were cooking the books, they were averaging the the ways averaging the data they were collecting in ways that came out with lower values because they wanted to have more blue sky days. But all that has come to the open now, and China has put into place uh, uh, checks and balances on their observations. Uh, so now they're they're of high quality and and they're being reported to the public and and it's built confidence back. But the embassy was critical in catalyzing that activity. So mm-hmm. so they've been a, and and they're now all the embassies and uh, consulates or many of them around the world are are doing the same thing, taking measurements. But coming back to the, the Governor Branson being there, I, I think it would be great if, you know, again, we are continuing to do work there. Unfortunately, scientifically, scientists to scientists, we can do things. But at the federal level, for example, NASA and other uh, agencies have some restrictions on how we can engage with China. Um, and from a scientific perspective, it would be better if we could have closer relationships. And so we are always trying to do more with Chinese scientists, doing more joint. It would be nice to be doing some U.S.-China field experiments, for example. And, you know, I think having uh, Governor Branson there might be an opportunity. I mean, we engage with the, the science people at the embassy, but, you know, being able to, you know, to maybe have uh, the fact that we have somebody there that might reach, uh, based on relationships, Iowa might, you know, reach be open to having some conversations and, and seeing what they can be done on, on the environmental level uh, mm-hmm. might open some opportunities. Yeah. For sure. Um, kind of moving up to that federal level, um, with the incoming Trump administration, it's possible that some climate smart policies could be rolled back in the U.S., what challenges lie ahead for people who do climate science? Well, you know, it's very early, but I think there are going to be challenges. I mean, we've already seen signs of that. I mean, I was uh, last week or week and a half ago at the American Meteorological Society meeting, and while that was going on, during that point in time was, you know, some of the announcements that were floated about all climate-related policies had to go through a, the political check uh, website information information at the weather service about you know giving a list of who's doing climate science I mean there there's all these things that were floated many of those have been backtracked a little bit but you don't know where that's going um, you certainly already you see uh, presidential executive orders that have rolled already rolled back some of the regulations the coal fly ash and other components uh, and this, um, this notion that I think is, is certainly an agenda item of you know, reducing regulations on the environmental side from, for helping the business, uh, the placement of you know, leaders in, in agencies that are doing science and environment, you know, certainly um, at the surface give you a little bit of pause that there might be some challenges there. So, you know, on the regulation, just coming to back to that, I mean, the U.S. Clean Air Act, I mentioned, you know, these 7 million excess deaths per year. Well, we've uh, reduced the number of excess deaths due to uh, 
air pollution exposure in a tremendous way and we've reduced emissions and independent studies, many of them have shown that that's, that Clean Air Act uh, is probably the, from a cost benefit analysis, the most effective regulation that we put into place. And so, you know, oftentimes regulations do what they mm -hmm. <laughs> really have good outcomes. But on the other hand, I'm, I think it's, it's we, we won't know. Oftentimes, you know, we think that a certain administration at the federal level is going to be a great opportunity to make real movements forward in, you know, pollution is one, and uh, you know, I think these regulations and others, they're backed off, will, could be problematic. The, the bigger issue, I think, is the climate side, and, you know, that's our biggest problem. It's the most complicated environmental issue we're facing, and, and it's not going to go away, and, and, and so, you know, and, it, and it's important that we do deal with it now and don't defer it for another eight years, because, so how that all plays out is, is going to be real interesting, I think. The good news is there's so much happening at the local and state levels. You know, a lot can be done whichever way the federal government uh, moves. But um, I think that's going to be a real, real, uh, real important issue. Mm -hmm. But again, you just, it's too early. I mean, I, I would say I know climate, I know people have, were so optimistic under our last administration. And we had some uh, modest gains in, in kind of engaging internationally and and taking actions that were actually, you know, slowing down our, our CO2 emissions, but more could have been done then. And sure. You, and you never know how it's going to play out. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. Those are all the questions I have. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, other than, you know, this, uh, I guess, lead the notion that, uh, you know, air pollution and climate change are, are, are intimately linked and, they have real importance to us at the local level, the state level, the national level, and the international level. And so um, we're kind of all in it together. So mm -hmm. I hope that through this activity and others, we can help raise awareness to that. Well, thank you so much, Greg. Okay, thanks. Thanks for listening to episode four of Inviowa. We had music today from David Sestay. Please also check out our blog at iowaenvironmentalfocus.org where we cover environmental research and news every day of the week. Or reach out to us on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Thanks again for listening. From the UI Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, I'm Jenna Ladd.